Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. What up, trippers? Everybody, welcome back to this episode of Tripping Over the Barrel. Oh, my God. <laughs> we're just talking. <laughs> right before this, we were just talking about salespeople going into demos and meetings that are clearly important meetings, right? And they need to nail it. And going right into that radio voice. And if oh, we did X, God. Y, and Z, would you be willing to sign on the dotted line? That's you, crazy. It's like yeah, I mean, that was really. Effective. I know what not to do. <laughs> <laughs> he's been he's been coached before, but oh, you know, hey, I'm I'm a little confused. I've we've haven't done this before. There's two people in the same room. This is a little weird. Yeah, it's not like a. It's he's real. He's a yeah. human. So, uh, Zach Warren, my guy right here, the CEO of Velocity Insight. No CEO. I've decided he is now CEO. No. I gave myself the title of CEO, so you also get the title <laughs> of CEO. Because being a CEO, it's going to be very important for us to get a good message across. Zach lives in Stapleton, uh, which is well, you know, Tim. What you the, wanted to the, tell us a story yeah. about Stapleton, didn't you? Well, I was going to start it, but you know, my my first trip to Denver was about a week or two after Stapleton had closed and everyone moved out to DIA. And so I didn't, I, I'm down in downtown Denver and everybody's still talking about people driving to the wrong airport. And I have, yeah. I had no context. I had no idea what they were talking about. And people were talking about Stapleton. I had, you know, I didn't have no clue. And of course it's become, you know, now it's a, you know, a town center with, uh, you know, I guess, uh, sub complete sub all the trappings of the good suburbia neighborhood yeah. and all that. It's it's kind of awesome. Like it's pretty great. I mean, we'll we'll get into all that with with Mr. Zach Warren Z Dubs right here. Um, so Zach, interestingly, we didn't meet until this year when both of us you were sort of like in transit and I was kind of in transit about to start Funk Futures. You had Velocity Insight about to launch, and we connected. And I think you were just like. We got to meet. I keep hearing about you. And I'm like, I've heard of you now a couple of times. Marsha Vihal, yeah, yeah, yeah. former uh, tripper herself. A friend of the show. And uh, <laughs> and we uh, and, and really enjoyed the time we spent together. I'm shocked that we were never in the same conference room, although we may have been yeah, at I'm, points, whether it was. I've sat through enough uh, schmoozy sales pitches from software guys at room. That now you're now you're with us. Now you're one of us. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, so I've gotten to know Zach a little bit this year. I actually really um, admire what he does. I told him at one point, Tim, you need to start charging for some of the content you're giving out because you're giving people the cheat sheet, right, on what they might need to do. And then you don't need people like me to help tell them what to do and sell them on what to do. So with that, Zach, I want to know a little bit more about you. I think you grew up in Dallas, but, but uh, tell me about your path to entrepreneurship in the oil and gas industry. Yeah, I never intended to be an entrepreneur uh, growing up. I I, um, yeah, I grew up in Plano, went to University of Texas, and then um, there you go, with the horns. It's been a rough decade to be uh, a Texas Longhorns football fan. I'll say that. Um, well, and I say, so we, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and for that, he is thankful. <laughs> uh, I, we still have eternal scoreboard, I'm pretty sure. That is, that's true. That last second. That's true. Uh, looking forward to those those two teams playing again. That's gonna be yeah. Fun. Did, so they used to always play the day after 
Thanksgiving. And, and we, we've got to be technically correct. You, it used to be Thanksgiving day. day. Then day they long. moved it for TV to the day after. Okay. And so, you know, we always want to back on Thanksgiving, but you know, TV so rules. Till, till when, when did they change that? Early two thousands. Okay. Yeah, so I was in college when it happened. Yeah. Really? Cause for some reason I remember it. So, I don't know. I guess my memory is just wrong. Either way, I was eating too much food, sitting on a yeah. couch and watching football. But it was CU Nebraska, which don't even get me started that they don't play every year. Like, whatever. Yeah, so they, um, they were always then, the morning game on the day after. And then A&M Texas was the afternoon game following, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting old now, but I really appreciate and want those older school Rivalry games, because you know it's like your neighbor has the Texas flag and you work with an AM person, and it's just like, eh, I just want that guy to shut up. Yeah, it, it, it'll be good for the state of Texas and it'll be good for hallway trash talk at EMP companies uh, throughout ever, North America. If they ever yeah. go back to um, the Which office. Which they will. Well, you know, if they go back to the office, yeah. I, I think yeah. oil and gas is more than other industries, right? You see like the heavy tech industries, and, and we'll get into all this, or I shouldn't say heavy tech, but really lighter tech, cloud, SaaS companies, yeah. Oracle. I have a good friend who moved to Austin, has worked for Oracle the whole time. He came from LA and he's never been into the office. In the same period of time, Oracle moved their headquarters from the Bay Area to Austin. Yeah. Like, it, you know what I mean? It doesn't affect the employees like it does in EMP. You know, but I think even the, the I would have told you before this started that EMP companies would have been the first to come back because of little bit older school, you've got to be there. And so, some companies did. Uh, I know Hillcorp, certainly, they went back very quickly. Everybody in the office, even if they still had restrictions, they want everyone in the office. But, you know, I heard today that Oxy, at least in the Woodlands, they're heading back to the office next week for the first time. So, I mean, wow, that's, it's really, I think it's, it's pretty impressive that that the EMP companies, the traditional operators have been able to adapt. Yeah. You know, so it's, that's, it's kind of interesting. So maybe not quite like, you know, the so, Facebook so, of the world and all those guys. And Zach, well, I want to get into your history, but this leads me to a logical question. I've never worked for an oil and gas company, oh. but I've been in conference rooms of, of upwards of 275 or 300 probably at this point yeah. over the course of from double wides, Tim, that we've, we've <laughs> yeah. gone into to uh, the, the highest floor on the yeah. most beautiful high rise in, in the downtowns of various cities. And what is it? I mean, the technology is available where people can, if you need to live stream or, or even look at subsurface as it's happening in real time, that technology is available. Why are companies so hell bent on being together in person? Or is it like Tim says, it's just sort of the nature of a business where people have always done that. Yeah, I definitely think there's sort of a natural conservatism to EMP companies that's appropriate, right? Like your job is to bring stuff that burns to surface and sell it without it ever catching fire, right? So I think that sort of um, conservatism is is normal and is appropriate. The other thing that I think is a little bit different about EMP companies is that there are so many different disciplines that you have to have to get the thing to work. You've got to have accounting and finance and land and midstream and marketing and a bunch of different kinds of petroleum engineers and a bunch of different kinds of geologists. And, and I think that, you know, if you have a like an e-commerce business and you really only have like three or four disciplines inside that business versus an E&P company, I think that changes how important the interaction is. 
the best descriptor anyone's ever given of the differences between kind of the modern technology company and everything that comes out of oil and gas. Because this is, those people go, even if they go to the same schools, they're in completely different departments, right? right. The the lease analysts probably did a bunch of uh, work as either, a, what, what a uh, like a legal intern, right? Potentially even went to law school or as yeah. a lawyer. We've had a few of those on this podcast. Accountants, laser focused on spreadsheets, right? Getting their CPA, CFA, whatever it may be, right? And then you talk engineers, you know, Tim, I mean, oh, that's yeah. very hard. You're focused on this. And the geologists, even though to a lot of people, including me, before I met a lot of them, geologists and engineers go together. They're actually very different. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Well, and, 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 you know, and I think like... I was going to say the geologist interacts with the reservoir engineer quite a bit. And then the reservoir engineer overlaps with the production engineer and completion engineers. So there's a, but so I think one of the other keys just to layer into this is the level of collaboration that was required kind of old school. And I think those really good collaboration tools are finally getting in place uh, because when we all stood around a map and we're, <laughs> you know, we're doing things on a map or looking at a log on the, on the wall, drawing and coloring on it. It, we're finally yeah. to that stage where I think the collaboration tools are there that you don't have to be in the same room to evaluate uh, a, a play or a, uh, a well location or anything like that. Yeah, I think it's headed in the right direction. I think a lot of, of companies are making that flip. I think one of the other really interesting things is watching, you know, we've been watching um, middle managers change over from, you know, the baby boomer generation to sort of go through the great change. Yep. Well, C-suites are going through the great crew change now. Mm -hmm. And culturally, I think that's been really interesting for me to watch from the outside of seeing some of my peers at other companies that have gone through that kind of shift. And when the, when the CEO changes, a lot changes culturally. Um, that's very different from the reservoir manager being, you know, on the other side of that, of that crew change. When the CEO or the CFO change out, that can make things move. So I've seen a lot of, of E&P companies go through a C-suite transition mm -hmm. and six months later, they're a very different company from a technology forwardness perspective and a lot of those kinds of things. I always and found it interesting when I was, you know, coming out of school and even at 35 years old, whenever I went into a, to an operating company to give a presentation, I was still the youngest guy in the room. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it wasn't yeah. until yeah. maybe, you know, maybe about 40 years old or so. I'm, now I'm aging myself, but about 40 years old or so, I started to notice there's enough kids in the room now that now they're looking at me differently than, you know, everyone else would. So it's, it was an interesting transition. I remember going to a meeting at Murphy Oil when, when we were at Energy Navigator, Jeremy, yeah. going in and then suddenly realizing there's, you know, a bunch of two and three years experienced people in the room and it, it had never occurred. It was the youngest room I had been in. So it was the first time I really recognized, holy crap, that the shift has happened. And yeah. I happened to be that, you know, that dip in the great crew change where they show the employees. My age group is the one sitting at the <laughs> bottom of that trough. I mean, there's, yeah. there's so few of us uh, in the industry. Yeah. We're just starting to, we're starting to get that push out. And I started at ExxonMobil in 2003, and so I was right on the front edge of the of the ramp up. And um, all of my mentors from Exxon, like they've all retired, um, 
you know, all these guys that worked amazing assets all over the world and did all this really cool stuff. At this point, they're all, you know, sitting on at the retirement house on Lake Travis or whatever. For sure. And uh, there's just kind of this big gap uh, in front of me. So we haven't got we haven't gotten into your bio yet, but since you said ExxonMobil, there's just a, a interesting conversation has been going around at least Houston in the last you know couple What's of weeks. On? What's going on? Exxon, there's this path. There's a lot of people leaving Exxon through just natural attrition, being hacked off for whatever reason, uh, the changes in the board, all the different reasons that you might want to leave Exxon. They're just too big or whatever. But pretty much everybody when they leave Exxon, they go take a picture in front of the cube. Yes. Oh, yeah. Take a selfie yeah. in front of the cube. So in my yeah. head, I've got this vision. Is there like a photographer permanently just set up there just <laughs> people in, a, in a line of people just going to stand and take their picture and 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 leave? But it, it's it's a fascinating thing. It's become its own meme. If you yeah, don't do that, the you're the oddball. <laughs> by, the, by the drone. That, don't uh, worry. There's security cameras and hidden drones that you're not seeing right there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, it's, it's so interesting. Now, I wonder if Exxon won't just rope off that area and just not let anyone stand there. I don't know that, you know, the Exxon has always done that though. I, yeah. um, one of my peers that started with me at Exxon had this spreadsheet and she kept track of all of the reservoir engineers that started in 2003 with us. There were like 45 between the international upstream development company and the U S production office. And, and she just like started checking them off and, and it's a bunch of people who've done, Really, really well. Friends of mine that are, sure. at, you know, reserves audit firms and one guy who helped run uh, Silver Hill. And I don't know how much money he took home, but he did really well. It, you know, great group of people of those 40 something. There are two that are still there. Wow. Um, wow. And and I would guess it was less than 10 at the five year mark. So that like that's always been part. They went from 40 something to less than 10 inside of five years. And that's always kind of been the way that Exxon you know, new hires went through and, and I think it's a little bit different than some of the other super majors, but they went through it too. And the, I think the assumption was always ExxonMobil is such a name brand. It's such a, it's like a good housekeeping stamp of approval on your resume. Like Procter and Gamble or right. something. Like well, I mean, there would always be a new generation that wanted to show up to work yeah. there next year. There would always be a crop of people coming out of school that said, man, I want nothing more than to go to work for ExxonMobil. Yeah. I'm not sure that's the case anymore. And that's the really interesting mm. thing about the cube photos and all of that stuff. I, I know a couple of people who have recently left Exxon that were in that less than five-year demographic. And I'm not sure how easy it's going to be for Exxon to backfill them with fresh meat. It's always been a meat grinder, right? It's always chewed through it's new hires. Yeah. Are they going to be able to find fresh meat going forward? Yeah, that, that is know. an interesting dilemma. But I, I will tell you that it's still... Exxon always had the reputation. We hire the best, you know, uh, so everybody knows it's kind of like having a Harvard degree. You, yeah. everyone knows if you were hired by Exxon right out of college, got a pretty good idea where your grade point was. Okay. And, you, and you're coming from a reputable place. Um, so they hire the best and they're not worried about hiring from a place that's not traditionally oil and gas. They know you're smart. If you're top of your class in Purdue, and they're going to bring you down and train you to be a reservoir engineer, production engineer, which whatever you need to be. Yeah. So, so there, it's always had that reputation. So when someone says, "Oh, I worked at Exxon Mobil for five years," there's a little eyebrow raise. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
Right. I, you know, I can't so, believe you just mentioned Purdue because it, that just brought so many dots together for me. Purdue is like a mini A&M in that they're in this like land of public university and everybody cares about Indiana, right? But basketball is a big deal up there and they got these engineer kids and it just develops this like cult. Yeah. And you know it too, but it's like a smaller version of A&M. And that's, I'm glad that, that you mentioned them, but it's true, yeah. right? Yeah. Same sort of caliber of student, same passionate fan. This is what we like, right? A&M, Purdue, and you guys just go for it, which is cool. Yeah. And I, I mean, my time at Exxon was amazing. Like I worked huge projects, really, really cool stuff. Uh, worked in the research lab there for a couple of years. Um, and got to travel a little bit. It's just, it was an amazing culture to be in. I'd, I could tell pretty early on that I didn't want to spend 30 years there. Um, but in terms of a place to start, it was where, great. You're from Dallas, a plano you said. Are your, uh, were your parents in energy, oil and gas, anything? No, my dad's an accountant and my mom was a teacher. Um, I, I actually, I grew up swearing that I would not go into oil and gas because mm. my best friend across the alley when I was a kid, his dad was a geophysicist, uh, mobile or Arco. And I, I think I was in the first grade and his dad uh, got shipped down to Houston. And so my best friend like gets kicked out. And, and from then on, I was like, I'm definitely not going into oil and gas. Like, whatever I do, I'm not doing that. I must uh, avoid Houston. All over the place. You, you get laid off all the time. Uh, that doesn't sound like any fun. And here I am. So, well, I'm looking so when you speak. started, when you started school, I've, I've got your, your uh, uh, LinkedIn profile up here. So you started at Texas in 1998 and that happens to be one of those years of holy crap what's going on price of oil actually hit what twelve dollars a barrel that that year yeah yep. um so i yep. mean it, it was it's not surprising gallon in new hampshire at points the summer of 98 99 yeah. i'll never forget under a dollar at cumberland farms yeah and, and i was a i was a mechanical engineer and in austin at the time everybody wanted to go to work in the tech bubble right like yeah. that was yeah. the thing and so that's what I assumed I was going to go in. And then the bubble crashed and all those jobs suddenly dried up. And so I, being a mechanical engineering category, whatever. And so ended up interviewing with Exxon and I, I can't, I'll never forget the, my interviewer, Warren Wagner, um, after a, a 30 minute interview, he was like, I think you should be a reservoir engineer. <laughs> I was like, how does somebody do that? Like I'm a mechanical engineer. And he's like, I think you're a reservoir. And he was right. So what, how about after Exxon? What was next? So then I moved to Dallas to get married and join Netherland Sewell and Associates. Wow. So like the standard ExxonMobil resume, um, go work for Netherland Sewell doing reserves for a couple of years. And then my wife uh, graduated medical school and got matched to do her pediatrics residency here in Denver. Um, and she works at Children's so Hospital. And she works at yeah, Children's Hospital. Awesome. She's yeah, a great, great animal. hospital attending physician over there. So that that's what brought us up here in the first place. We never really planned to come to Denver. Hmm. I think my mom's still upset about it. But are uh, you, uh, really like it. are you typical of people who have uh, moved to Denver? Is it, you're locked in now? Yeah. Now we've got <laughs> uh, two kids in school and my in-laws moved up here. They live 10 minutes from us. And, uh, and it's great. It's a, it's a great city. Um, to raise kids and, and all that stuff. And I, I also love Houston and Dallas. I don't, I don't have anything against Houston. Like a lot of Denver people do. I think it's a really amazing city. Um, but the family stuff at this point and, and my wife's job will keep us here long-term. 
Yeah, so one Tim thing- and I are very different in this regard. We we talked about this before. Tim's like, you know, we could go move to Dubai for eighteen months for a couple <laughs> of business opportunities, and I'm like, this house that we're sitting in right now, <laughs> this is the house. Like. I might be here in 30 years, but I know I'll be here in 15 years. <laughs> You're you know, pulling me out of here. So our mutual friend, Peter Allen, he, he, he always wanted Denver as a territory. And I was like, Peter, if you liked in Denver so much, why don't you just move up there? And he said, because Tim, if I lived in Denver, I couldn't visit Denver. <laughs> so that's his, that's his thing. He lives down here, but he tries to get to Denver once a month so he can visit. Yeah. So then we moved up here and I had commuted back and forth to Dallas for a while, uh, working for Nell and Sewell. And then since then I worked for a series of, of the, you know, the typical Denver tide oil companies. There's lots and lots of them. So I worked for Samson and Resolute and most recently great Western, uh, petroleum. Now is that the same Samson that's, uh, the used to be in Tulsa or the old Samson Tulsa? Group? It is. That's one. Yeah. Old Samson okay. Tulsa, the Schusterman family. Um, yeah, I joined like 18 months before they went through the KKR buyout. Uh, so I was trying to track down because I missed all of that. Where did Samson go? I couldn't figure out who they got bought into or. Well, they so most of Samson got bought by KKR and then loaded up with a bunch of debt and prices fell and they ended up going through bankruptcy. And those assets basically got liquidated. They got carved out and went to a bunch of different uh, places. The last chunk was the. Powder River Basin asset, which I worked, uh, that went to Continental um, just maybe two years ago. Okay, a uh, year and a cool. half. I so, didn't know they were there. Yeah, gradually over time, they that the KKR piece, um, you know, got divested. Old Family Stampson still has uh, some interests in um, the Wyoming side of the DJ Basin, um, so they still have some pieces. But that whole experience of going through the acquisition. And then we took the bonds public, which was, I mean, we went from an old family run company to publicly traded SOX compliant bonds Ooh. in like 15 months. It was a wild ride. And that changes the complexion of everything you have to do, right? Yeah. Yeah. Everything. I mean, that the way that the financing was structured, the way that, um, you know, we had these kind of new overseers from KKR and their involvement. Um, sure. It was, it was, uh, it was a heck of a time. I, I learned a ton, um, you know, got a, a sweet little payout from our unit appreciation rights. Um, it's sometimes it's better to be, to be lucky. Lucky than good. good. Yeah. That's somebody yeah, said to me on the golf course, maybe this morning when I was playing golf. <laughs> maybe. But, um, and I didn't even get my payout, but I can still play golf sometimes. But no, you know, hit a tree, bounces back in the fair. Okay. Yeah. All right. Better to be lucky than good. So now you're good too. So I'm allowed. I'm not good at golf. You're you're good at business, sure, reservoir yeah. engineering. You name it. So go ahead, Tim. I know you. I was, I was I'm looking here, here so yeah, I want to get to what you got a reservoir engineer here. I know you're excited. Oh, <laughs> so well I, well, I guess I'm getting ready to pivot on you a little bit. So Velocity Insight, that's your new gig. You just started up in March. You, you're a reluctant. Yep. I don't know, reluctant is not the right thing, but you're an entrepreneur now. Not that you wanted to be ever before, but you are now. So what is Velocity Insight? What made you start it? Um, now you're now that you've been promoted to CEO, what's that like? <laughs> I, I was just the founder this morning. I don't, I don't know what happened. Did you get promoted? Or? I guess, yeah. Uh, no, th so the last two years at Great Western, I um, started up a data warehousing and data analytics team at Great Western. So we, we kind of built that from scratch, did some 
software implementations and things like that. And I, I never would have guessed it, but I really liked it. It was, um, it was a whole new set of problems that I'd never really had to grapple with before. It was, um, uh, a new set of like disciplines and functions that I needed to learn about. I had to learn a lot of land and accounting and stuff like that, that hadn't really been, you know, a, a reserves guy, like you, you touch that stuff once a year or once a quarter, but you don't do it in the kind of depth that you need to, if you're going to build a report based on that data. So found that I really liked it and decided, well, and the other thing I saw was we made a bunch of mistakes. You know, we went down rabbit trails and things like that in that project there that, man, if you took that same team and that same technology stack and did it again, it would take you half as much time and half as much right. money. And then the third time and the fourth time and the fifth time. Right. And, and having a little bit of a consulting background from Nolan Sewell, the first thing that comes to mind is, man, this shouldn't be done in-house by every single EMP. It would make way more sense to have a team that could come into a company and, yep. and bring lessons learned and all that sort of stuff to solve it. So um, I started out actually looking for a consulting firm to go to work for. Um, again, not really being somebody who was just like built to be an entrepreneur. I'd, I just assumed that somebody already did this in the way that I had in mind and spent some time looking, couldn't really find it. And um, so I said, hey, I guess I should go start something on my own. And, and to be completely transparent, you you told me what you were looking to do. And I go, yeah, I don't know, man. I'm not totally sure about it. But what I underestimated was, was you and the caliber of your team. Um, truth be told, there is a huge demand for data management in oil and gas. Now that oil prices start to tick up, people are really going to be ready to tackle this. There comes a point where if it hits like 120, people are going to be too insane to, to know yeah, what to do. I, I feel like that's almost true at 80. Um, people Maybe, are, but, but people you, are running fast. But I would think now people are like, okay, we've got some runway. I need to talk to a subject matter expert who's done this stuff before. What's, what's your approach? So I am curious without giving away all the secret sauce. And I told you, you give out too much for free. <laughs> but what is sort of the secret sauce of Velocity Insight uh, that you guys bring to market that's, that's new and, and different? I think it's really the the deep experience in-house at operators. So everybody on our team is like a decade plus of of working for small, mid-sized, super majors, kind of everybody in between. And that um, that experience of knowing what it's like to actually work at an operator and um, and to know all the lingo and where the bodies are buried from a data quality perspective. Um, I think puts us in a well can be named. <laughs> oh my gosh, well naming API numbers. Sure interest factors, like all the, all the data types that are, are troublesome. And I, I think having a team that has seen all of those problems um, puts us in a position where we can solve things quickly and, and, and with better quality than you could with hiring, let's say like an industry agnostic data engineer, right? Like a data engineer might be fantastic at SQL programming or Python programming or what have you, but if they don't have the background of understanding what it's like to be in on a rig or understand what it's like to try to get accounting and land to talk to each other. It's just not the same. That skill set you just described is, is very hard to find. It's like a oil and gas expert. That's also somewhat of a technology expert in seven different things, including SQL and then six other niche applications. So literally on the drive over here, I was on the phone with a recruiter who was calling me looking for a, uh, reservoir reserves engineer 
who can do uh, SQL ETL work, business intelligence dashboarding, and machine learning. And I, so that's a uniform. When I got done laughing, right? Yeah. When I got done laughing, I was like, "Well, that that's not one person, right? That's multiple people. It would take you." thousands and thousands of hours to be legitimately good at all of those things. Well, and, and when you find that guy, there's three of them probably in the whole world. And <laughs> when you find that guy, it's a, oh, you're going to pay a lot for that guy. Yeah. I mean, so let me ask you, I'm going to, I want to get more detail on what you do and I'm going to ask it in a different way. So what is the run of the mill or the ideal situation that you run into where people need you know, velocity to, to work on. What is, yeah. what is the ideal situation? You know, I, I think our sweet spot is small to mid-sized ENPs that are trying to get their data to talk to each other better. Um, and we can act like the, the kind of data analytics team that a, a really big ENP might have, like a, an Apache or a, a Pioneer or you know, somebody that has a real substantial in-house team. And we can say, okay, for that project you need a quarter of a BI dashboard developer and you need a quarter of a SQL programmer and you need a production engineer that just actually understands what life is like and, you know, on a well side and, and stitch together the set of skills. Cause like you're saying, there's not that unicorn available. I'm not that unicorn. Nobody is. What you've got to be able to do is bring a little bit of the multidisciplinary team to solve something. So are you bringing those resources to bear or are you leading the your client in that effort we're bringing the resources to bear and and fitting with what the client already has right so if the client already has somebody who's really great at the sql piece but they need sort of the um the, the pieces that are missing to solve that particular problem well we've got a 12 person team we would be in a position to um to fit that team together and and because our team has all worked together for quite a while we know each other really well. We know our strengths and weaknesses. We can um, do things like agile project management and all the, the fancy buzzwords. Um, <laughs> we can put you in a position where this, the problem gets solved faster and, and better than you could if you were trying to whiten up the lit and do it on your own. And when it comes to hiring full-time resources, he goes right to Funk Futures in their recruiting department. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's, that's actually not, that's not true. I, I I do. Someday, wow. right, we, right. we need to put this on our list of topics is I really want to someday. I, I think there's a whole episode on agile project management, and agile product development, because I've yet to find anybody that actually follows agile all the way. So, Tim, and, a little, little interesting uh, tidbit about my life uh, in the year of our Lord, 2005. Our Lord, maybe not mine. But I was going to get ready to say, Lord. wait a minute. I just hear people say stuff like that. And it's like, you know, I want to fit in. So the year of yeah, the go. board, 2005, I worked at a company called Rally Software in Boulder. Really? That was that. legit. Like I was employee like number 12 or something. I was legit like a sales guy. And the products I was selling was a cloud SaaS product that helped for agile project management workflows, as well as custom training that was very expensive to fly to... Microsoft, BMC, software, Amazon, uh, you know, FedEx, you name it, to teach them Agile. Uh, and I probably would be retired and not on this call had I just worked just there for like there. five years. They did really well. Yeah, they did really well. Yeah. But um, so I'd actually like, I'm somewhat of an expert 
in my mind uh, on those things, but it just, it's very logical at its core. Well, I just, I just get a kick out of how many projects start out with, we want to use an agile implementation methodology. And then usually question two or three is completely, no, we don't want to do it that way. Well, okay, well, we're not doing agile. Then we're going to do some sort of modified agile, I guess. Yeah. I think the really hard thing for oil and gas companies is that basically everything you do physically in the field has to be waterfall. And right. so the culture and the way that people think about it is all, I'm going to drill it and then I'm going to prep for frack and then I'm going to frack. And, and it's, it's that linear waterfall approach. And when you take a, um, a C-suite or mid-managers who have spent their whole career in that kind of framework and try to do like a $20,000 software implementation, it's, it's a big shift. It's hard. Oh, yeah. and it, I, I think having a team that can, um, that can set away, set aside that, that waterfall approach is useful. That's, that's a good point. A real good point. So our, I think our ideal client, like I said, is small to mid-sized EMPs, but I've got a meeting next week with a really large EMP that um, they already outsource a lot of their data management and analytics. By the time this show airs, by the time this show airs, you have already had that meeting. So I think you should feel free to just name them. <laughs> you, know you don't kiss and tell, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, <I've been> <laughs> I, that, you know, they're outsourcing a lot of their stuff to like, you know, programmers in India and things like that. And I think one of the problems that I've seen with consulting firms that come from outside of the industry, outside of the country, is there's a there's a little bit of a culture shock and there's that learning curve to learn the industry um, that we can just skip right over. You know? That's huge. And I mean, I guess the, the oil and gas industry, probably more than others, at least in my mind, has a lingo that is so different. And you, know, you may... Just take the API number, okay? <laughs> yep. API 10, API 12, API 14. And you say the word API, people may be thinking about the American Petroleum Institute, the organization, not the standard. And then you've got, it's just a fascinating thing to go through and then come to find out that wells are named all kinds of different ways. And uh, yeah, anyway, it's just, it's a crazy, crazy thing to try to pick up. And that's where the nuances really come in. Yeah. And I think, you know, given my time in the industry and, and our team's time, those questions are just easy, right? You've already answered those questions 10 times. And so you're able to move on to the really useful stuff like, okay, what is it you want on your report? What is it that you're trying to achieve? Okay. You say you want to do pump by exception. What does that mean? What are the combination of technologies you're going to need to actually implement something like pump by exception? Um, that's a That's a buzzword that I think is difficult for most management teams to turn into reality. Now, Jeremy's not only a, an expert in his own mind on agile, he's also an expert on pump by exception in his own With, mind. One of the first people who ever sold uh, iPad based field data capture to pumpers. So, you know, I can say that probably with a level of truth, maybe not a high degree of it, but I was trying to do it. I'll, I'll tell you that. So I want to, I want to shift real quick. I was in Houston this week and First of all, the weather in Houston was was amazing. Good week to be here. Good week to oh, be man. here. As Tim would say, a Chamber of Commerce week. Um, and I had an absolute blast at Energy Tech Night. This was the first one that I'd been to. Um, have you been to one of those? Not before? yet. I, I 
I'm waiting for it to show up in Denver. So I for those, those awesome. who don't know, this Digital Wildcatters, one of their events is Energy Tech Night. They bring a lot of industry together, uh, technology providers to do presentations, and then they just have a big party and networking event. And then this was the same night as that game two of the World Series. So they like pushed it an hour earlier and then like showed the game in the background. We're like, all right, let's get this thing over with so we can get the game out of the background. Um, But really well done. And and as has been the case now a couple times this year with both Evolve and and ETN, I think Digital Wildcatters does a good job of, of, of setting a high bar and then going beyond that bar, but that was a very professional event. The energy it, technology. You know, it's professional and fun. That's what makes it interesting to me is it, it's not stuffy. Like a lot of the events you, you actually want to attend, get the content, yeah. but ha- you're having a good time all the same. Yeah. You, you get a real wide range of ages too. Like it probably skews to younger, but you don't feel old if you're in your fifties showing up there. Right. I mean, it's, it's still like kind of mixed and, I think the the beauty of it is everybody's thinking forward. The critique I gave to Jake, which he totally agreed with, is some of these companies are going in and presenting and not realizing how expert the audience is, that you just can't come in with some of this shit that's like, what we do is we pull your data together and build you dashboards. It's like, (laughs) no, you need to start talking within industry terminology. Give me a use case that's been exploited and then tell me how you're going to help me why you just feel like you're introducing yourself. Cause a few of the companies went up and I still don't know what they do. And, and if, and if I don't know what they, they do and That's someone like news. Zach doesn't know what they do, bad this news. is what we do. Like yeah. we have to know. I'm like, you just sound generic. Right. So, you know, interesting. And, and I think there's a lot of value to be had at those events, but like I said, kind of went above and beyond. And it, I told him, I'm like, you know, you want to do something in Denver, we can start to help out. We had that, that energy tech showcase here. Did, that yeah. was fun. Yeah. Be nice to get Denver going on that on that cycle yeah, again. Absolutely. So I, it, to me, it's really interesting. Like, how do software companies actually get something done in the ENP space now? So we started building a database when I kicked this thing off of all of the pieces of software available for sale targeting ENP companies. Hmm. Uh, I've got about 300 in there right now. I'm 100% sure the number's north of 400, and I think it might be north of 500. It is just upstream. Just E&P targeted. I'm not even talking about stuff that targets service companies. Okay. It's completely overwhelming. Um, and because a lot I would, of I is, would guess you don't even have my company on the list. I do because I. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. that. <laughs> you were number 288, Tim. Don't feel bad about it. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, it's crazy. I mean, the old legacy software doesn't die, yeah. and there's a new round of of software startups like every year. It's crazy. Well, I know. Combo yeah. curve is trying to knock a couple of them out, but <laughs> yeah, I have they, a, I have a question. Since you're, since you're a new entrepreneur, mm-hmm. since uh, what March of 2021 here, what's your less? What is the biggest learning or lesson that you didn't expect to get that you got in the last six seven months? Yeah, you know, as an entrepreneur who started their company in March, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. I mean, uh, Jeremy, yours I is think, January, so you got a whole other couple months on. I think it was March, according to the LinkedIn thing. But you know, <laughs> that this question? What was the question again? Sorry, well, I was too excited. To biggest learning, you know, of starting your own company that maybe you didn't expect to learn. I, I think my biggest learning is how willing people are to help. I think um, 
you know, having been in the industry for a long time, man, there's a, there's a ton of people that I worked with a long time ago and, and, uh, reach out and yeah, let's grab coffee. Let's grab a beer. Let's, um, let's talk about what's going on and, and like bouncing my, my business model off, off of other people is, has been a lot of fun and, and really encouraging of, yeah, sure. Let's, let's give this thing a shot. So have you found it? People are encouraging you to go into that or they're saying, yeah, that's not going to work. Uh, more of the former. Yeah. I, I think a lot of my friends on the EMP side have struggled with a lot of the same things that I've struggled with. And so when I walked through the business model, there was, um, oh yeah, that makes sense. I can see why that might work. Um, and then also I think maybe this is sort of like an American perspective, but people love the idea of jumping out and, and going and starting something right yeah, like that, yeah. that there's just the there's the excitement and the sort of the risk taking aspect of it that um people root for you you know that, it's like how people used to root for the astros cuz they were underdogs that that used to happen yeah well it's, it doesn't seem to be the after case 2017 that's over uh <laughs> so jeremy same question biggest learning do you do you echo the find the same thing or do you have a different biggest learning <laughs> There's just no roadmap. Um, you know, I, I think I had in my mind an idea of what the business might look like right now, and it looks absolutely nothing like what that roadmap I thought was, right? I, I thought that I would really only work with these sort of newer emerging tech companies, bring them to bear, get them to the table. But there are so many companies out there that that are established that have never branded or marketed or or pushed their, you know, their company out there. Yeah, I I I share that. I'd I read the lean startup um, yeah, in a April or May and um, kind of was like, ah, this is a, this is a software, you know, startup book. I'm not sure it's going to apply to me. And man, I go back to lessons from that book and the, the way of thinking about like, try something, see if it works, figure out how to measure whether or not it's working and then try something new. Uh, yeah. And don't stay stuck on, on your idea. It, it's tough because you really want to, also be like true to yourself and true to your business model. And this is what I believe the world needs and I'm going to go fill that need. Um, but at a certain point, like you, you got to pay attention and listen. And when say, I think, no, yeah, I think that's not what the world wants. 100%. What I have seen, not that I've done it yet, but is there are shifting visions. You have to be willing early in entrepreneurship to shift visions because you've got an idea of what's going to be highly valuable, but then the market will tell you, well, maybe maybe this is more valuable and you've got to really think and shift. And so maybe it, it, I guess the question becomes, does it take you out of your passion or, or, you know, uh, or is that a new passion or anyway, it's, it's just a yeah, curious I, curiosity as I start to go yeah. down that path. I'll, I'll give an example of that. We started the company really thinking we were going to do advisory and implementation work, right? We were going to help advise companies on what they ought to do. Um, and then we would support them in making implementations effective, right? Um, like the first week somebody asked, hey, uh, we could really use some training on a couple of things. And now that's, I'm, I'm, I probably spent 25 hours on training this week, building a curriculum for, we're going to put out what I think will be the first oil and gas focused Power BI training on the market. Yeah. Um, I mean, because there's like nobody that. doing it and right. there's a whole bunch of ENP companies that are trying to get on that. So, uh, I think we're going to go live with our first Power BI training class in December. Um, we signed a deal with your boys at Saga Wisdom. Um, so we're going to be the Power BI and, and AWS and Azure 
um, uh, curriculum providers for the Saga Wisdom platform. And, um, and there, I think there's a ton of, of need for that uh, throughout the company, throughout the industry. So we're, we're bridging the gap on our show, Jeremy, bringing all of these different groups together. It's, uh, well, yeah. so I, there's one thing I want to pivot to because Zach and I talked about this on the way here. I'm like the industry bartender a little bit, right? Especially now that I'm like unencumbered and not W2. <laughs> People just want to tell me stuff, right? So, ooh, this company did a layoff. These guys just raised this. They just hired this guy. Like, is this public yet or not? But I saw in a couple text messages before I came here, Persephone, the ESG carbon capture technology company raised a Series B of one hundred and one million dollars. No, holy million dollars! And so, at the time of this airing, that's public. Yeah, it's public as of now. It, no, it, it was, was this was a screenshot yeah. thing, like today. Yeah. Wow. Oh my god. That's that, I mean, that tells you about this transition we're getting ready to enter into. That's. I mean, it just tells me they're like, hey, this is. Because it's it's the money people that are pushing all this. It's they want EMP to notice. Look at the funding that these companies are getting. Start paying attention to this, because because with Persephone, like we're Tim, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Karthik, the EMP side is still relatively unsure, right? This to me shows the finance side will be right. the ones pushing. Wall Street is certain. Wall Street is certain, even if the EMP companies aren't. Exactly. So the craziest part of this news, there's a Business Insider article that says that their pitch deck was four pages long. Four. Four pages long to pitch for a $100 million Series B. Wow. Wow. That's What's the name of our uh, EFG company? Guys? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Get a couple more of these hazy IPAs well, and we'll, <laughs> we'll have it done. This thing's going. Yeah, where, where are we going after this? Oh, so, man, I, I, mean, I think the, the lesson there, so your, your exit, uh, Zach, is... You know, you should be thinking about four pages rather than 30 when you're ready to. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, consulting companies don't really exit, right? Like consulting companies build a reputation and they become trusted. And, and you know, the Netherlands Sewells and the Ryder Scots and those guys have been around for decades and decades. And I, I, uh, I, I think that's probably the logical choice for us. But it, I mean, some of the money that gets thrown around in the ESG space right now is really jaw dropping. That's unbelievable. Well, I guess we're we're at our forty-five minute mark here, and um, I guess Velocity Insight. Where? How do people get a hold of you? How do they these small to mid-sized EMP companies get a hold of you, Zach? You know the website and the LinkedIn, just like everybody else. Uh, Velocity-insight.com, um, and you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, just like everybody else. I've been posting some content. Maybe it's awesome. uh, of interest to people. So. Um, good newsletters, all that well, stuff. Well, and yeah. doing, doing the research, I, I see you going to the Tibco Now show and, and publishing, hey, this is what we saw. That's yeah. that's valuable. I yeah, mean, I hope so. I, I think the, uh, the software space is fascinating right now. We're really trying to be fully agnostic, right? Not have any conflicts of interest um, because I think really right now it's really hard to pick winners. You, you yeah. really have to like... I'm very clear with people that I am not agnostic, right? Yeah, that, right. That, I, that my crew is being compensated by some people to create business opportunities for them. But part of my job is to find those right companies and right. establish who it is. To bring that back to ESG, we're still trying to figure that out, right? Yeah. That, that, like I could see Funk Futures or companies like mine that do sales consulting 
pivoting to just be an ESG or energy transition technology company because it's what people don't fully understand, right? And I could see your business taking, oh, and guess what? Now you need certain reports. Velocity Insight has figured out how to sequester that data to bring it to the table yeah. and, and well, keep I mean, your investors off your back. Along those lines, there are companies like mine that we're, we've, we've done a lot of workflows in upstream production engineering areas. Well, we're looking at those ESG workflows that need to be in place for these emerging uh, requirements and emerging yeah. strategies. And so we're, we're embarking on one of those now. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, you have to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's going to be a lot of lessons learned over the next few years. Yeah. Well, one lesson I learned today was uh, not to tell Zach Warren that he had a bad idea because then I'll just throw it in my face that he has 12 <laughs> employees six months later. <laughs> Thanks for coming to the crib. Absolutely. Thanks, man. See ya.